On May 22, 2011, an elderly man emerged from his home saying he was, quote, flabbergasted, end quote, that the rapture had not occurred the day before and that he would now have to, quote, think it out, close quote. Rather than abandon his efforts at predicting the return of Christ, he doubled down on it and said that what happened on the 21st of May was a spiritual return and that Christ's actual return and final judgment would come in October, October 21st of 2011. Of course, that day came and went, and we're still here. Nothing happened. That man, of course, you probably remember, was Harold Camping. It made international headlines, the news around his predictions, his failed prophecy, and uh, was one of Google's top trends in the days leading up to it and around it, reaching this number two top trend worldwide. In preparation for the 21st of May, Camping's ministry led a major billboard campaign across the globe, spending $100 million, uh, much of which, I understand, was donated by people. One supporter alone is said to have spent $140,000 of his own money on billboard campaigns, warning people of it. Many other followers of Camping quit their jobs, sold possessions, sold homes in order to just wait out May 21st. So, as you can imagine, the failed prophecy left a lot of people dejected and crushed, right? questioning, of course, camping, but also, worse, questioning the scriptures, questioning God himself. One group of Vietnamese followers of camping even found themselves imprisoned. So they gathered they gathered together to wait out till May 21st in a, in a place, and the authorities raided that place and called them extremists and threw them in prison, and no doubt they would have thought they'd have the last laugh. Um, but imagine, the 22nd comes around, not only has the Lord not come, but you're in jail for this. I mean, it's hard to imagine just how devastating this would have been for all those people who quite literally and figuratively bought in to camping's prophecies. And of course, during those times, still others found opportunity to mock the scriptures themselves as being mythical. I remember t-shirts were for sale saying, I survived the rapture, and so on. Of course, camping is not the first, and he most certainly will not be the last to make predictions about the return of Christ. There are many questions about the Bible's teaching regarding Christ's return, and this can cause interest, but it can also cause angst and uh, fear and concern in people. And as a matter of fact as well, the, uh, the end of the world and a fascination with the end of the world, it's not just a Christian thing, but people from religions all over and also uh, secular people as well. So um, even if you'll remember back uh, when the Mayan calendar was a big thing, and supposedly the end of the world was coming December 21st of 2012. It was quite a year uh, for end times prophecies um, between 2011 and 12. So there's all that speculation. Of course, that didn't come to pass. And even the church of secularism has their prophets of doom. 
uh, most notably seen in climate change theorists who have been making failed prophecies about the destruction of the world for decades, or at least regions of the world for decades. Uh, you go back and you can see them. We won't be here in 10 years. That was 30 years ago. Um, and they continue to make them today, and it's all about doom, doom, end of the world, it's coming. So no, one, it's, no one's immune to this. You see this everywhere. The fear and panic about climate change, of course, is everywhere. And so thinking about the end uh, can fill us with anxiety and questions. And what we believe about it certainly has consequences. And as we come now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is going to address a church that was rattled by some of the false teachings about Christ's return. The fact is, while the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions about Christ's return, it does have a lot to say about it and about how it is that Christians are to think about the end and how it is that we are to live in light of Christ's return. So back in 1 Thessalonians 5, if you'll recall, 1 to 11, we looked at how the return of Christ meant that Christians are to remain alert. Verse 6, to remain awake, we're to be ready, we're to be living lives of holiness as we await the coming Lord and the um, completion of our salvation, of our redemption. And now in 2 Thessalonians, Paul has more to say as he encounters another issue with regard to Christ's return. So today, we're going to look at how, as we continue this series on a faithful church, how a faithful church remains unshaken and unalarmed about the end. Faithful church remains unshaken and unalarmed about the end. This is the main thing that Paul wanted for the Thessalonians as he writes this, which we'll see in just a moment. It's the main thing Paul wanted for them. Um, Remember, he, he's addressing, he's, he's acting pastorally. There's concerns that have come up, and he's giving them the information they need to, to help them out, to help ease their minds, as we'll see. And so this is what the Lord would have for us as we come to this. This is Paul's main purpose of writing this section, to calm the Thessalonians and to still their troubled souls. And so in verses 1 to the first part of 3, we'll see that Paul's making this point. He's urging them to to uh, calmness, to not be alarmed by this, by some news they've received. And then in verses, the second half of 3 through to 11, we're going to see reasons he gives for why it is that the Thessalonians should not be alarmed. And then uh, I think 13 to 16 kind of continues with reasons why we should not be alarmed, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll cover those next week. And so this this. Sermon will be just in terms of the structure will be a little different than the way I would normally do it. We're going to talk a lot about just we're just going to really try to walk through the text and then come back near the end and talk about some implications and try to answer a little more of the so what does this have to do with us uh, some of those questions. So um, so normally I'd like to work that in all throughout the sermon, but uh, it'll be a little different today. So let's just begin by reading. Starting in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. 
Let no one deceive you in any way. So Paul has just finished the end of chapter 1, right before this section. We, we looked at it two weeks ago. He finished talking about the Lord Jesus' return in fire, in fiery judgment, if you'll recall, to bring about justice. So remember the Thessalonians are being persecuted, and Paul said that uh, when Christ returns, they would be relieved, and those doing the persecuting would be judged. This would occur at Christ's return. And that, that's going to happen when, when Christ returns. It's not just persecutors that are going to get justice. It's everybody. He's coming to bring judgment and, and uh, to uh, judge in righteousness. And so now here in chapter 2, on a related note, he addresses an issue of concern for the Thessalonians having to do with, as we saw, the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together with him. Now, if you'll recall back in uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, he discussed the Lord's coming and believers being gathered to the Lord. So these two issues, the Lord's coming and believers being gathered, he's, he's discussed this in his previous letter. And we saw there that Christ will return. He's going to come with the believers who've died. It says the dead in Christ will be raised first. So those believers that are with him will receive resurrected bodies. Their souls and bodies will be reunited, made imperishable. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, uses that language. So the, those who've died in Christ will come with him. They will be raised first. And then it says we who were, uh, are left alive when Christ comes will be caught up with them in the clouds. And then as 1 Corinthians 15 makes clear, we too will be changed in an instant and receive um, new imperishable bodies. And so back when we looked at that, I uh, made the case or argument, I said that the rapture of the church uh, is not something, I don't think, that occurs seven years before Christ's visible visible return, but it's something that happens at the same time. And so in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, still back to what we covered previously, Paul went on to talk about the times and the seasons of this event. So he's talking about Christ's return in chapter 4, and then he talks about the times and the seasons, and he calls that in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul also links Christ's coming and our being gathered together with him. He links that to the day of the Lord. So again, Verse 1 of chapter 2, now concerning the coming of our Lord and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So the issue that troubles them is this belief that the day of the Lord has come, which is also tied to Christ's return and to their being gathered to him. So the, the day of the Lord in Scripture is used uh, in a couple different ways. Um, there are times when uh, it, it refers mainly to judgment that is coming. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 13, it's used to describe the impending invasion from the Babylonians. The Babylonians are coming, and this is described as the day of the Lord. It's going to be a day of judgment for the Lord's people. However, it's also used in a number of places to refer to a future day, a yet future day, and a final day 
which will bring judgment on Christ's enemies and salvation to his people. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, um, there's talk about church discipline where they're handing this person over to Satan. It says, with the hope that this man's spirit would be saved on the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is a day of both judgment and a day of salvation. So for Paul, Christ's return to judge and to gather his people is the same. It's the day of the Lord. And the Thessalonians here are concerned that the day has arrived or that it has come. Now this could either mean that they are concerned that it has already happened, that they've, they've missed it, or more likely, they were concerned that this day was, was, was upon them, that it was in the process of coming right now. And uh, so th- this concern unsettled them in their understanding of their current situation and circumstances. Why are we still suffering? Is this the day of the Lord? Have we missed him? What's happening here? Uh, and it left them insecure about their, their position, their place, their part in the coming glory. This wasn't unfolding. If the day of the Lord is upon us, this is not unfolding as we understood it to unfold. Did we miss something? What's going on? And again, remember, 1 Thessalonians is, is the first letter we have written by Paul. It's a very, very early document, probably around 50 AD. So this is, it's, it's not like they've had years and years and decades and centuries to think about these things and process these things and build on the knowledge of Christians that have come before them. This is all very fresh and very new. And so it's quite easy to see why there could be all kinds of confusion uh, about this. And so Paul here is imploring them. He says, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So this is Paul's desire. This is his aim in this section, that they not be easily rattled. To be shaken in mind um, is, is, uh, refers to having one's opinion changed quickly. So uh, that's, he wants them not to have their opinion changed quickly on this matter. Uh, to be alarmed, this would be the, more of the emotional side of it, the being disturbed or being troubled by this news. The source of this alarm, Paul says, either, is either a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, which claims that the day of the Lord has come. And I think... I think this shows that Paul is not entirely sure the source of the uh, false teaching. Uh, It could be that it's uh, a prophecy of some kind, a false prophecy, or it could be that there's a fake letter going around in his name. Um, I I don't think he's exactly sure, which is why he lists these things. But regardless of the source, Paul is here correcting this false doctrine saying that it isn't in accord with what they've been told, with apostolic teaching. So we're going to see here in verse 5, for example, that the stuff he's telling them here is really just a reminder of things he's already taught them. So he has given them instruction on this in the past, and someone or something has come along and has thrown them off course about this, has altered their thinking, and and this has upset them. And, And so he's just coming back to say, whatever the source of it is, Don't be alarmed by this. Don't be rattled by this. And he's going to remind them of things that he has told them. So Paul is not so much dealing with a prediction of the end times, although maybe that's kind of there. 
um, but more a statement that it has already occurred or is in the process of occurring. And his call is for the Thessalonians not to be too quickly shaken in mind, not to, be, not to have their understanding easily altered, and also not to be upset or disturbed by it. And so calmness, clear thinking, being rooted in the teaching of the Scriptures and the teaching of the Apostle himself, this is the key for Christians. We are not to be easily upset by teaching on the subject, false teaching on the subject, claims, nor are we to have our minds easily changed. Paul says here, let no one deceive you in any way. So that's the call. That's the claim. That's the call for us. It was for the Thessalonians to not to be easily rattled by this. And now he goes on to give reasons, to give reasons why the Thessalonians should not be alarmed about the end. Verse 3, he says, for... This is, he's about to give his reasons. That's what that word tells us. For that day, that is the day of the Lord, when he returns, gathers his people, and brings judgment, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So there are two reasons why it was that Paul said that the, the Lord hasn't come, that they shouldn't be rattled by this. Those two things, namely, are... The rebellion and the man of lawless are to come first. So these two things, this rebellion or apostasy, as we'll see in a moment, and this man of lawlessness uh, are, are, what are two of what are commonly referred to as the signs of the times or signs that the end is near. And so this is the idea that there are certain observable things that must come to pass before Christ returns. Now, this is a point of contention uh, amongst many believers who love the Bible, who believe the Bible, um, because the Scripture talks about, on one hand, you have these observable signs, but on the other hand, you have Scriptures that seem to say that Christ's return is imminent. It could come at any second. And so we're to be ready, because it could happen at any second. And so there's, there's these two emphases in Scripture. So some people think then that the imminence passages, the ones that say uh, it could happen at any second, uh, refer to Christ's rapture of the church, which is uh, preceded by nothing. So just at any moment, there's no signs before it, just at any second, uh, imminence. Uh, the church could be raptured up out of the way, then would begin the tribulation, and then Christ would return visibly um, seven years later. There's different ways people would make that case, but that's, that's how some might resolve the tension between these, this imminence and, um, and this idea that there's observable signs. So then the observable signs, for those who hold that position, would be referring to Christ's visible return. These things are occurring during the tribulation when the church is raptured out of the way to be with the Lord. So that's one way of understanding the tension between these truths. Um, I, I don't take it this way. Um, rather, uh, both Paul and Jesus talk about, I think right in the same places, talk about um, Christ's impending return that happens suddenly. So there's language of suddenness. And in an hour we don't know, and no one will know, or can, can, nobody can know for sure. And yet, 
And yet at the same time, both in Paul and in Jesus, we see that there are observable signs, certain things that need to come to pass before Christ returns that remind us that he is coming. So the two groups of passages then, I would say, are, are built in to keep us from being apathetic, but also to keep us from setting dates. So we are to observe signs around us and be diligent, but not get so caught up in it that we go ahead and start setting dates. So uh, consider for a moment Jesus' words from Matthew 24, verse 32. He says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts its leaves out, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, these signs he has gone over, you know that he is near at the very gates. So there's signs that will be seen to know that Jesus is near. And then two verses later, he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So these two things seem to be, side. they are, side by side. Additionally, as I mentioned back in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, when we covered that ground, um, many of the passages referring to the suddenness are aimed at unbelievers, at those who are not ready. So Paul said back in chapter 5, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he said that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So that's the suddenness. It's this kind of out of nowhere. But he goes on to say two verses later in verse 4, that believers are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. So certainly there's a suddenness to it, but it's not a surprise. It's going to be most surprising and most out of the blue for those who reject the Lord. It'll be like the days of Noah. It's not that Noah didn't preach and proclaim that this was coming. He did. Uh, however, they were rejected it. The people rejected it. They ate. They rose up to play. Life is normal. And then all of a sudden it came upon them. And that's what it, the Lord's return will be like for those who reject him now. And so we are to be ready, we are to be aware, we are to be observing things around us and not surprised when the Lord returns. And two of the signs are an end times apostasy and the man of lawlessness that Paul describes here. So I think that one of the things to remember is Paul, again, is addressing in this chapter uh, that we're looking at now, a church that is rattled, a church that has been shaken. And so... Um, he gives the emphasis in this passage is on observable signs. So he's, again, instructing them to remain calm. There are certain things that need to happen first. This isn't happening right this second. Um, and, and I think his emphasis is, is on this aspect because the people are rattled. Uh, they don't need to be told the Lord could come any second because they're, they're panicked about it. They're concerned about it. They're worried about it. They're rattled by it. So he's here balancing their view and bringing calmness to them. So the two main reasons given here, the apostasy must come and the man of lawlessness. Um, apostasy is mentioned first, um, but I think that he returns to that near the end in verse 10. So I'd like to talk about um, the man of lawlessness. First, so Jesus warned 
We saw this a few weeks ago as well. He said in Matthew 24, 24, Many false Christs will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So he talks about many false Christs that will come, great wonders and signs, bringing deception with them. 1 John also references many antichrists, many false Christs. He says in chapter 2, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour. And as you know, or sorry, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. So I would argue that the Bible teaches that there are many false Christs. There are many Antichrists. They are always present in this age. But I would also argue, the scriptures teach, and this is what Paul is talking about here, that these, these signs and this particular sign of, of the man of lawlessness is uh, a climax. So we see many antichrists. There are many who come and go during this age, but at the end, there will be one. There will be one man who will be revealed, who will be uh, the antichrist. He will embody the spirit of lawlessness that is already at work, which we'll talk more about in a second. And so I think that uh, this is the way that all the signs of the times work, that they are always present in this age. They're always at work, but will culminate and climax just prior to Christ's return. So it's true of apostasy, and I think it's true of false Christ, the Antichrist as well. Many Antichrists, but there will be a climax in one particular person. And I think that is the person that Paul is speaking about in 2 Thessalonians 2. He calls this person the man of lawlessness. He says this man of lawlessness must be revealed prior to the day of the Lord in verse 3. The fact that he's called the man of lawlessness indicates that this is a man who has no concern for the laws of the Lord. He is a man of sin. Some um, manuscripts even have that. They call him a man of sin. It's really the same concept. No regard for the Lord. He's anti-law. He's anti-Christ to be sure. He's an opponent of Christ. He's a replacement of Christ. He is a man of lawlessness. He is the son of, diso- of destruction at the end of verse uh, 3. So he's destined for destruction. This is who he is. So even in this passage about the lawless one, and it talks about the power he'll have, it talks about the um, the delusion that's going to come along with him. Even here, he's the son of destruction. He's going to be destroyed. This is part of his purpose. The Lord, as we'll see in verse 8, is going to destroy him with the breath of his mouth. goes on, he says that this man opposes and exalts, verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So he's a man who opposes worship of anything but himself, we'll see. He sets himself up over against the worship of any so-called God or any object of worship. Obviously, this is extreme arrogance and extreme blasphemy. And the result is that, it says, he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There's a lot of debate about what it means that he would um, take his seat in the temple of God. 
It's obvious that he's, by so doing, he is proclaiming himself to be God. He is usurping that which belongs only to God, worship. But what does it mean to be seated in the temple? So some would see an obvious reference to the Jerusalem temple. Daniel prophesied about the abomination of desolation. Uh, A prophecy that I think ultimately also points ahead to the final Antichrist to come, though there are those who also, like Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 BC, who fulfill that. I think Daniel's still looking ahead to a greater fulfillment because Jesus himself in Matthew 24 references Daniel's prophecies and and tells the people then to be on the lookout for this. so it would, it would seem to make sense then that this refers to the, the temple in Jerusalem. Others would see this as being a reference to the church, since Paul, every other use of the word temple for Paul is a reference to the church. This is partly what would give way to a lot of the reformers seeing the Pope as being the Antichrist, along with a lot of other similarities. We'll leave that for a moment. Uh, Others see this as being a pagan temple, um, that the Gentile Thessalonians would have seen regularly. So at this time, the uh, imperial cult is significant. Emperors um, were deified. They were worshipped as divinity. They demanded this. Uh, We know this from different inscriptions on coins and remnants we found in temples. We, not me, other people have found uh, in, in temples. That, uh, and, and lots of other sources. Emperors demanded to be worshipped. So some would make the case that that would be the most logical thing for the Thessalonians to think when they hear uh, about a temple. Um, others would see this as being symbolic, that this person is one who sets themselves up as the supreme object of worship, that they usurp God's rightful place and demand themselves to be worshipped Instead, Now, I lean towards this being symbolic, but I think it's quite likely that Paul has Jerusalem in mind as he's painting the picture. Though I would also say that thinking of the Jerusalem temple doesn't preclude the possibility that there is some symbolism involved here. And so at the very least here, we would say that this is one, this man of lawlessness, is one who is usurping God's place and demanding worship. In verse 5, we see that Paul, um, what Paul is doing is reminding them of what he's already told them. So read verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So one of the frustrations for modern interpreters, for us, is that Paul doesn't elaborate on what he told them more. He's just giving them enough to remind them of what they've already discussed, what he's already told them. So, for example, with regard to the temple he's talking about, they probably know very clearly because they would remember what he said when he was with them. But we don't get that. So we're left trying to figure this out and put this together the best we can. He also says, verse 6, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. Talking about the man of lawlessness being revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. 
So again, he doesn't elaborate on what or who it is that's restraining the man of lawlessness here. They knew this from the pre- a previous teaching. Right? He says that, and you know what is restraining him. And so again, we're left, what is it? Asking the question. And the difficulty with this, again, this is a very debated part of this uh, section, is that in verse 6, the thing that is restraining this man of lawlessness is called a what. You know what is restraining him. It's a neuter word. Whereas in verse 7, we're told, he who now restrains, and now it's a masculine word. It seems to be indicating a, a he is restraining this person. So there's all kinds of debate then and question about what could this restraint be. And so I would submit that ultimately, this is the work of the Lord. Perhaps specifically, it's the Holy Spirit who's restraining evil as part of God's common grace, as part of God's upholding of the universe and keeping it together. And yet, there will come a day when the Lord will release restraint. And this man of lawlessness will step forward and be revealed. He will embody the spirit of lawlessness that is already at work, it says. So again, the spirit of lawlessness, it's at work already right now. Paul says that, verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So there's many false Christs who come, many who succumb to apostasy, rebellion against the Lord now, who fall away. This is already at play today, but they will climax at the end when restraint is removed and the man of lawlessness will then be revealed. And then in verse 8, if anyone's nervous about this, you know, this troubled by this, that there would be a man of lawlessness, that restraint might be released and lawlessness is going to abound. If anyone's troubled by this, Paul again reminds us in verse 8 that the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So, the Lord's coming ends this individual. So while the scriptures speak of final rebellion this, and a battle against the Lord, even Revelation 20 and elsewhere in Revelation, it's not much of a fight, really. Um, in in the, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress, we sang last week, talking about uh, Satan, uh, there's a line in there that says, One little word shall fell him. And that's really what's being described here with regard to the man of lawlessness. The breath of his mouth is going to, I mean, that takes nothing. It's going to destroy this person. And so we see here that even this man of lawlessness ultimately is no match for the Lord. In verse 9, we see, oh, let's read it. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So the man of lawlessness is empowered by Satan. Underneath what the man of lawlessness is doing is satanic, demonic power. Revelation 13 uh, pictures this, the dragon, Satan, giving power to the beast, the beasts. So again, underneath the activity of this lawless man is Satan himself. 
We're told the man of lawlessness is given power and works, uh, and that he works false or lying signs and wonders. So some would see these works, these wonders, as being real, though demonic wonders. So it's actually not a normal occurrence, but it's just rooted in demonic power. So these, these would be false signs in that they uh, are, are, are claiming to be the work of a divine being, but they're not. They're actually empowered by Satan. Some would see it that way. Others say that the false signs are actually fake signs. That is, they're counterfeit, they're pretend, they're, uh, they're, they're meant to deceive. So that, that phrase can, could be translated quite literally in all, he's going to come in all power and signs and wonders of falsehood. So this falsehood could refer to the power, the signs, and the wonders. Could be that all of it's faked. I, I would just say, either way, even if there's no earthly explanation for what this person is doing, this person is not to be believed, and we're being warned about it. These works, these wonders so-called, they lie about the person. He's not divine, though he's requiring worship. He goes on to say, The coming of the lawless one is also with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So here Paul returns to the rebellion that he mentioned back in chapter 3, the rebellion that is to come first. The word rebellion I mentioned uh, is the same word uh, for apostasy. It's the idea of falling away. Uh, rebellion is, is a good word, good translation. Um, elsewhere, the scriptures speak of this. They speak of um, falling away from the faith as a sign of the times. So again, to Matthew 24, which again, back in 1 Thessalonians, I, I, I said, and I, I think it's true, that Matthew 24 undergirds what Paul is, Paul's eschatology. Um, so Matthew 24, 10 to 12, and then... Jesus says, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. In 1 Timothy 4, 12, sorry, 4, 1, Paul also says this. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So again, these Verses point to the lawlessness that's already at work. There's already false Christ coming. There's already apostasy happening, and we're to be on guard for it. It's a present reality. It's a current threat. It's a sign that's ongoing that reminds us that the Lord is going to return, but it's also one that's going to climax at the end with the rebellion. That's 2 Thessalonians 2 here in verse 3. It's the rebellion. It's not just any rebellion. It's the ultimate one. And it's tied to the work of the man of lawlessness. So I think there's constantly apostasy, but it's going to be worse at the end. In verse 10 is described as a wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The Bible is clear that not everybody who claims to be a Christian is in fact a Christian. 
That is very... Um, a lot of people don't get that truth. And I think it's really important and helpful and brings clarity to a lot of things in Scripture. For example, Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, not everyone who says, yeah, I'm pro-Jesus, I like Jesus. Not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven, which tells us not everyone who says, I'm a Christian, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone, in fact, is. There are those who profess to believe in Christ, yet they've never had a heart that's been made new. They've refused to, in fact, love the truth. And so as a result, they don't actually do His will, and they will not actually enter the kingdom of heaven. So I think as we read about people falling away from the faith, that's helpful to have an understanding of in the back of our minds. That when people ultimately abandon the faith, fall away, and perish in that state, they ultimately fall into that category of those who claim to be Christians but in fact were never born again. And I think what is pictured here is not just a reference to professing Christians falling away, but people around the world who are buying into the man of lawlessness and his deception because they're eager for anything other than the truth. They do not love the truth. Romans 1 talks about unbelieving man suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And, and here, he talks about, at the end of verse 12, they take pleasure in unrighteousness. And so the deception they're quite happy and willing to go along with, it suits their purposes. And it's because they don't actually love the truth, regardless of what it was they might have said at one point. We're also told here that this deception, amazingly, is sent by God. Verse 11. They're sent, it's sent by God so that they may believe what is false. So again, we have God here handing people over to their sin as an act of His judgment. Even the activity of Satan and the man of lawlessness are fulfilling God's purposes. This delusion, this apostasy that comes, is part of God's judgment on people, handing them over to their sin, sending them a strong delusion to keep them in that state. And this will compound the judgment of those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So Paul is telling us here that there is going to be a rebellion, there's going to be a man of lawlessness prior to the end. And I think what he's saying is that this will be recognizable. And yet, the man of lawlessness still seems shrouded in much mystery. There's still much confusion. There's much disagreement amongst uh, Bible-loving Christians over who this man will be, where exactly he will show up, what exactly this is going to look like. There have been many attempts in identifying him throughout the history of the church. Um, certainly Nero I mentioned the Pope. Um, even Hitler has had this applied to him. And oftentimes, I think there's actually a lot of truth to this. 
And again, if we keep in mind that there are many false Christs, many antichrists, it would make sense that many of these individuals would fit this description, would fit the bill, though perhaps they are not the final antichrist. And so I want to suggest for us a couple of implications in terms of what do we do with this information? What do we do with it? The first thing is that we need to be serious about exercising discernment in the people that we follow. We need to be serious about exercising discernment in the people that we follow. Why is this the case? Because the man of lawlessness is a false Christ who comes with false signs and with a strong delusion. That language ought to make us very careful. We should not just assume, well, he's an antichrist, he's going to outwardly claim he hates Jesus Christ, it's going to be pretty easy to spot him, not going to worry about it, because we're also told there's a strong delusion that comes with it. So ought to give us pause for a moment. I also think that this applies, this man of lawlessness, this being careful who we follow, applies to political leaders in addition to religious ones. So Revelation 13, we've just referenced it quickly, we haven't discussed it, but it ties the work of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, to the godless nations of the earth that are in rebellion against the Lord. And so I would just caution and say, beware those leaders who set themselves up as savior-type people. I think these are fair and necessary implications. We ought to be careful and discerning about the people that, it, that we follow. Second implication, we should guard, we need to guard our doctrine with extreme care. To guard our doctrine with extreme care. This is so, so despised in our day. So despised. And yet, we are told that a strong delusion is coming and an apostasy that precedes the Lord's return. We also know that there are many Christs coming to deceive people even now. So, the call is for us to not be deceived, to guard our doctrines, to not be presumptuous, to search the Scriptures, to cling to Christ, to cling to the teachings of the Scriptures about Christ, to cling to the Gospel. Additionally, First uh, John talks about how many Christs have come, and who is, or ant, ant, false Christs have come, and who is this one but the one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh? And so I think what he's saying there is that was a particular heresy in that day um, where uh, the, um, the spiritual part of Jesus was emphasized and his humanity was uh, denied. And so this is a, a heresy um, that it denies the reality of the person of Jesus who is truly man and truly God. And so I think what John's saying there is, an antichrist is somebody who is heretical. So again, I think false Christs, they bring false teachings, they're bringing uh, delusions, and we are to be careful of this. And so we're to guard our doctrine. And I would just suggest, um, if we can't do that now, or have no interest in that now, I would ask, how are you going to do that if, when the delusion comes? If the antichrist is revealed as a strong delusion, but you have no practice of you know, discerning, we're not ready for it, we're not going to be ready for it, and we're in danger of being swept up in the false teaching, both now and at the end. 
So we need to guard our doctrine with extreme care. The third implication, beware an inner desperation for seeing miracles. Beware an inner desperation for seeing miracles. False Christs, including the man of lawlessness that we just read, read about, come with false signs and wonders. There are those who are itching for some sort of miraculousness, miraculous experience. And those that are in that condition, who are just dying for some miracle or see something that appears miraculous, are, those such people are sitting ducks for these people. I once lived in that place, unsatisfied with, you know, church and preaching and the difficulty of trying to read your Bible and actually understand it and apply hermeneutics and the wrestling that comes with that, being very, uns- was very unsatisfied with that and really, really, really longed for something else, an experience. And let's be honest, those are easier. When those come, they feel good. It's a lot easier than trying to think through a passage and, and figure these things out. And, and people who are in that position, as I was, are sitting ducks for this. Every time something comes along, you're, oh, this has got to be it. You're constantly on the search for this new and great thing that might be happening. And wherever someone claims a miracle, um, it, those who are yearning for this are in danger. And so, if gold dust comes out of the ceiling of a church, claiming to be the Spirit of God, Don't be deceived. If you see a YouTube video of a man's leg zoomed in on his feet and his leg does this and his leg, short leg is now lengthened to match his other leg and this is being espoused as a great miracle of the Lord, dig into it. I remember seeing that very thing and these are by uh, word of faith Teachers and healers who deny the gospel, who preach a a different gospel, um, a health and prosperity gospel. And so, false sign, false wonder. If you hear claims of resurrection, don't be deceived by these things. Don't be easily rattled by these things. Again, check their doctrine. Look into this. Don't just go running for it. Oh, wow, maybe. And looking for it. Guard yourself against an inner desperation for seeing miracles. Those are just a few examples of things that I've read recently. Um, We're not to be easily shaken. This doesn't mean miracles don't happen. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that this text should result in our care, though, and guard it against signs and wonders because... They are used by false Christs. So we should be careful. People will tell you that the reason you're guarded against false signs and wonders is because you lack power. Oh, you don't have miracles. You don't see these things happen in your church. Oh, so doctrine is your big cover-up now because you lack power. This is very common. Uh, Very common today. The New Apostolic Reformation, if you're familiar with it at all, is big on this. They make that argument, and it's designed to cut the legs out from under you when you question anything. Oh, you question that because you don't have the power. And you look at yourself and say, yeah, you're right. My life's pretty ordinary. Maybe I don't. 
It's designed to win the argument before you've ever had it. But Christ tells us here, Paul tells us here, that there's a strong delusion coming with false signs and wonders. So we need to be careful. Be careful. The fourth implication, today is the day to be made right with the Lord. Paul speaks of a strong delusion sent by God to those who do not believe, but who take pleasure in unrighteousness. This should shock us into reality. The Lord's patience is not eternal. It does not go on forever. Time runs out, and one way or another, sinners face judgment. And so the response ought to be our fleeing to Christ. And so as we consider to the end, we are called to be unalarmed and to be confident, knowing that the rebellion and the man of lawlessness must be revealed first. We are those who are seeing this principle of lawlessness already at work around us. And this is to remind us that the end is coming. And when we see people falling away, when we see men resembling, to some extent, the man of lawlessness, we are to cling the more tightly to our salvation in Christ Jesus. And if we are doing these things and we're on the lookout for these things, then if the man of lawlessness arrives on the scene, then I think we can be confident that we will stand firm. A faithful church is unalarmed about the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace to us. God, you would be right to just judge us all and wipe us all out, to leave us all in our delusions, And yet you've sent Christ. In your good pleasure, you make yourself known to people. And so we give you praise and thanks. God, I pray that we would be those who are not easily alarmed about the end. I pray that we would be those who are careful to watch our doctrine. That we are not careful to follow people off into error. God, that you'd help us to do this with a spirit of joy and a spirit of love and that this wouldn't result in just being grouchy about everything. I just pray that we would be careful and that we would be careful out of a desire for truth, out of a desire to honor you, out of a desire to love one another and help one another to reach the end and to be standing at the end when Jesus returns or when we are called home. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those who are not easily shaken or rattled. That we would be those who remember the truths of your word and stand on those. God, give us much grace. I pray that as we share with others, that you would draw more people out of this city who are in the kingdom of darkness, that you would draw them into the kingdom of light. And make them to stand strong to the end as well. We pray that you do this for your own namesake, your own glory. God, I just pray that you would bless us now as we gather and and eat food together and fellowship some more. We just give you thanks for all the ways that you've provided for us for your salvation. Also, just for providing simple things that we so desperately need like food. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.